0: pancakes are good on Saturday mornings, and I was listening to a song, um, and it, uh, you might, maybe not have heard it, but it's, it's a Christian song, is about, I've seen too much, I've seen too much to, to turn back, to turn away from the Lord, and it recounts through, essentially it's from the eyes or the viewpoint of the apostles, particularly Peter, he's seen too much to turn away from the Lord, to whom else? Will he go? He says. And that, that last song we just sang, "Amazing Grace," for many of you, perhaps, has a just a special uh, connection to something in your life. Um, I remember singing it at just a couple years ago at my grandfather's funeral, and we often say, in the, as a family, that uh, what we witnessed with the Lord saving him just a few weeks before he passed was amazing grace. And I was thinking about that as I was listening to that song. I've, I've, I've seen too much. I've seen the Lord do so much. Once you've seen the Lord do those kinds of things, maybe in your own life or even more so outside of yourself, and you know that it has nothing to do with anything that you did or whatever else, you've just seen the Lord work. You, you, you sing that song with a different, um, there's something else behind it. It's not just empty information or make something that makes you feel good because we all sing our parts right, but you've seen the Lord's amazing grace work, and there's something about that. You, I'm sure many of you know what I mean. There's something about that that you've seen it, you've seen him work, and it's it's just so good, and it humbles us, It it comforts our souls, it encourages our hearts. Praise God for music and what a gift that is for us to be able to sing praises to him. I look forward uh, to singing around his throne for all eternity and never getting tired of that, never um, losing my breath. God is good. Let's go to him in prayer and ask uh, for his help this morning as we open his word. We sung that little line, his word my hope secures. Does his word secure your hope? It should because it points us to our only hope. And so let's go to him and ask his blessing and help. Gracious God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for another Sunday, Lord, that your people can gather in the name of Christ and sing praises to you. Lord, you alone are worthy of our praise. You alone are worthy of our honor, of all majesty and power and greatness. Lord, we just are in awe of you this morning. And it's with that, Lord, that we get the immense privilege of opening your word together. We need not wonder, what does God have to say? What what would God say to me? He has already, you, Lord, have already said it. And you've given it to us graciously in your word. Lord, we ask that your spirit would do its work in us by your word. Lord, we trust your word. We trust your spirit. We know that it's not by any person in this room that anything will happen here today. But it's only by your spirit and your word. And So, Lord, we trust in that. We look to you now. And may Jesus Christ be glorified in all things. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in the little book of Philemon, and we began there last week, and I finished about halfway through uh, last week. And to catch you up or to remind you, Philemon is a small little letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to uh, Philemon, and Paul's imprisoned uh, in Rome, and he's writing to Philemon, who is, he says, verse 1, a beloved fellow worker, he's a Christian man. We find that he is a uh, he is the owner of a slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus, at some point, ran away from Philemon, ran away from underneath the the the, the uh, lordship, if you will, of Philemon, ran away, and somehow providentially ends up meeting Paul. And when you meet Paul, <laughs> you're going to hear about. Paul's master. And that's what Onesimus heard. He heard about Paul's master. And Onesimus became a Christian. He was converted underneath Paul. And he became this dear brother to Paul. And, and Paul calls him his son, my child, verse 10. He calls him his very heart, verse 12. And Onesimus served Paul became a Christian, but Paul is, in this letter, sending Onesimus back to Philemon in the church in Colossae, and sending him back to Philemon and encouraging Philemon to receive him, and we'll see exactly what Paul's real request is uh, this morning. But he's sending him back to Philemon. And we talked about how last week, essentially, the, the letter to the Colossians uh, was written nearly the same time, most likely delivered at the same time. And so Onesimus is standing there with Tychicus, if we, look, if we read in Colossians. He's standing there with Tychicus before the Colossian church while he's reading that letter to the Colossian church. And there stands Onesimus with him. And perhaps even the, this letter to Philemon was read at nearly the same time. And all the drama and all that wonderful scene that we can imagine um, going on uh, there as Onesimus is commended there to Philemon, but also back to his brothers and sisters, who he now is their brother in Christ there in Colossae. I'm going to read the whole letter uh, if you want to follow along with me, and then we'll jump in at verse in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me even your own self, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's word. There are a lot of great themes in this little letter, and some of them we pulled out and talked about last week. But we see, uh, really at the forefront, is the value and worth of Christian friendships. Friendships. Um, the, the means and the relationship that Paul has now with Onesimus, that Paul has had at some point with Philemon and he's building off of, that Paul is encouraging that soon Onesimus and Philemon can have again with each other. There's something different about a Christian friendship. It's built from and sustained by different materials, if you will, than other friendships in the world. Those of you that have uh, non-believing friends, if you're a Christian, if you have non-believing friends, you know there's just something that you don't seem to share with them that you do with other Christians. And no matter how different they may be from you for all kinds of reasons, there is a uh, sense that you share something different in the Lord. But let's just get rid of the word friend for a minute, because we have in many ways misunderstood that in our culture. A friend is just somebody who clicks that they are our friend, even though we never talk to them. Christian brotherhood, sisterhood if you'd like as well, is something that is just here in the background of all of it. That even as Pastor shared when he was there in Canada and wherever else across the globe, we, many of us have been throughout uh, the world and throughout the years, We know that there is a sense of fellowship amongst other Christians that maybe you wouldn't call that person your friend, but they're your brother and sister in Christ. And all of that is in the background of this letter. Paul is um, appealing to Philemon, who at some point we said, most likely Paul was instrumental in Philemon's conversion, sharing Christ with him. Again, you meet Paul, you're going to hear about Christ. And Philemon did, and he did, and he believed. And so in the background of all this is this sense of Christian brotherhood. Friends are wonderful, friends are good, but boy, even if I wouldn't categorize someone as my friend, if they're in Christ, they're my brother or sister in Christ, and I'm going to spend eternity with them. So whatever whatever language I use or whatever categories I use to try to say you're my friend or you're not my friend really that has no bearing in the, in the sphere of christian and uh, brotherhood and sisterhood if you will because what we have in common in christ is far better than whatever terms or categories you use to describe whatever whoever your friends are so that's there in in and through all this. Also we think about how we view all kinds of people through the lens of salvation. That's what Paul is ascribing to or rather appealing Philemon to do with Onesimus. He's he's talking to the master, the owner of the slave and saying, "Look, you need to look at him differently now because you're both standing on equal ground before the cross. Everything's different now, Philemon. And so how we view people through the lens of salvation, that changes things. But even let's take a step back from that. Just the the, the the dignity of people. It's not as if Onesimus had no, and we talked about this last week, it's not as if Onesimus had no value before he was a Christian. It's not as if Onesimus was not a person of dignity and worth before he was a Christian. But there's something that has been added to all of this now, that he's even more valued and of more worth and of more uh, uh, all of that because of what Christ has done to him. But even stepping back from that, there's a baseline dignity of all people, everyone you've ever met, anyone who's ever breathed air on this earth has, and we'll get there here in a bit later, uh, biblically how we can say something like that, has value and worth and dignity. We see a theme of forgiveness here. Right? We've talked about how Onesimus most likely wronged Philemon, and there's forgiveness uh, that is in and throughout all of this. What Paul is encouraging Philemon to do, and even imagine Onesimus standing there before the Colossian church, most likely, as we said, Philemon there sitting in the congregation, and there stands Onesimus as the letter is read to the church, and as they make eye contact. And what, what is Philemon thinking? What is he feeling? What is Onesimus feeling? I'm sure he's just a mess. There's forgiveness there, wonderful things. There's a great heart for ministry. That's what Philemon says, or that's what Philemon has. Paul says, you've refreshed the hearts of saints. We talked about that last week. When people spend time with you, are their hearts, are are Christian brothers and sisters' hearts refreshed in Christ when they spend time with you? Or is it the opposite? There's a heart for ministry that Philemon has. He just loves people, and that's what Paul's appealing to. There's, of course, this wonderful, and we'll talk about it here in a minute, this wonderful transformation of Onesimus being a slave to a brother, now, of Philemon. And all that that means. Paul's prayer for Philemon, we talked about that last week, that his prayer in verse 6 was that the sharing of the faith, the, the, the fellowship that Philemon has in the faith with Paul, he's praying that that might grow and become more effective and that he might grow and understand all that is in Christ. All that that means, Philemon, to be a Christian. All of the the riches that are in Christ and all the ways in which that is God is seeking to, by His Spirit, through His Word, bring about all this transformation, Philemon, in you. But then we see this sense of obedience to others in the Lord. That's what Paul's doing. He's appealing to Philemon to obey Him. And who's Paul? Well, Paul's kept that in his holster, if you will, right? But he's an apostle. He's sent by the Lord Jesus. The very fact that we have this letter means that Paul had some authority. We said it wasn't self-derived. Paul did not appoint himself. But the Lord Jesus gave him that authority to speak in that way. And Paul is calling Philemon to obey others in the Lord. And so there's all kinds of things in this letter, many more that I could list. But I wanted to give us a grounding a little bit in that before we jump in here. To verse 13, which we're going to do now. He says, I would have been glad to keep him with me. Paul Paul was happy to keep Onesimus with him, right? He's gotten to know the Lord, Onesimus has. He's useful to Paul. Remember what Onesimus' name means? Useful. And Paul says he's useful to him. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf. In other words, saying to Philemon, he might It's almost as if, Philemon, you're here serving me, that Onesimus is here with me. I would have been glad to keep him with me. But, verse 14, I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. In other words, Paul's saying, (laughs) I didn't want to sit and say, you know, Philemon, you're so gracious for giving me Onesimus. And really, Philemon's like, well, I didn't have any choice. Uh, Onesimus ran away, and he's there, and I didn't, I didn't choose that, right? So Paul says, th- th- this is giving us a clue into what Paul is really asking here. This is what a lot of people, as they read this letter, wonder. What is Paul really asking Philemon to do, right? This gives us a little clue. I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. He's saying, I want Onesimus back. To serve with me and serve me in the gospel. He's useful. So that gives us a little clue. But he wants Philemon to do that of his own accord. Because, remember what I said last week, Paul trusts the gospel. Paul trusts the power of the gospel. That when Onesimus goes back, there's a great risk here. What if I send him back? And what if Philemon suddenly just turns on him, punishes him, and I never see Onesimus again? Paul trusts that the power of the gospel that has transformed Philemon, the power of the gospel that has transformed Onesimus, has the ability to do exactly what he feels led by the Lord to do, what he knows is right, what is required, he says. Paul trusts the gospel. He does not try to get in there and become the Holy Spirit and maneuver situations. How often do we do that? Right? It's so easy to be the Holy Spirit, especially in someone else's life, Right? And when we treat people like projects and that we don't trust them to, uh, or we, really we don't trust the Lord to do what it is the Lord says he's going to do all throughout the, his word, right? And we want to get in there and maneuver and maneuver their lives. I remember the first guy I ever shared Christ with when I was a newer Christian. He struggled with drugs and some other things, and I can remember after I shared the Lord with him, and it seemed like he responded. I remember I worked with him. Every single day I'd see him, I'd say, so, you know, what'd you do last night? Well, I went to a party, and then pretty soon I'm out there, you know, basically spiritually caning him because he went to this and he did that. But the reality was it doesn't help him if I give him a tongue lashing because of what else he did, if he's not convicted by the Spirit for doing those things, I can't help him because I'm not the Holy Spirit. And I've, and maybe you can recall someone in your life that you've shared the Lord with and you've just tried to maneuver, and I, I want to keep you from this and keep you from that and keep you from that, pretty soon you realize, well, I'm not actually trusting God in this at all. I'm just trying to modify their behavior. Which pretty soon... year or so later, maybe, those people usually end up, where do they go? Well, we really just got them to stop doing this or stop doing that, rather than actually saying, Lord, save them, just like you did me. And so that's what Paul's doing. He's trusting in what the gospel will do. He wants to allow Philemon to do what is required. Verse 15, For this is perhaps... This, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. What Paul is doing in this, this, just in that one word, perhaps, what he's saying is, through what took place, in other words, Onesimus running away from Philemon, here's what Paul's saying. Perhaps God was working through all of this, that he might so that Philemon might have Onesimus back as a brother in Christ. Perhaps God was allowing all of this to take place, even Onesimus's sin of running away and perhaps obviously stealing something or harming Philemon in some way. Perhaps God was allowing all of this to take place so that the result might be what it was, namely that Onesimus would meet Paul that he would come to know the Lord and that he would return to Philemon as a brother in Christ. And what Paul is doing behind all of that is making a profound theological statement. Understand that this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is not Paul's commentary on what he thinks might have taken place. But that perhaps, right? Perhaps, we say that, well, maybe this is what God's doing. I, I don't know. Perhaps that's, what, perhaps that's why. Because we're saying we don't know, right? I don't know what God's doing. Usually we know more so what God did when we look back and go, oh, that's why, and then, and then, okay. But we, you and I don't know what is God doing right now with all of the little things that are happening in all of your lives and mine. I don't know. It seems like this, but I don't know, perhaps. That's what Paul's doing. Perhaps that's what's taken place. And it's similar to what we know about the story of Joseph. I'll ask you to turn with me back to Genesis, first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 45. You may remember the story of Joseph. Joseph is the youngest of the brothers of Jacob, or of the sons of Jacob. He's youngest of Uh, that whole crowd, and they don't really like him. He says some things sometimes that make him seem not that likable, and they decide to try to get rid of him. And it ends up becoming such that he is, he's not killed, but he's then picked up by traitors that sell him into slavery. He winds up in Egypt, he winds up in jail. Pretty soon, though, uh, he is there uh, really ruling over Egypt, as a um, powerful, powerful ruler. And this is what Joseph has to say about it there in Genesis 45. This is after the brothers come back to him, and all this time has taken place, or all this time has passed. The brothers come to him. They don't know that this is him. They don't know that he wasn't dead. Verse 4 of Genesis 45. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, "'I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For, look, at, look, look what it says. "'For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest.'" Here it is again. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. It's like he wants to make that abundantly clear. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. A few chapters later in Genesis 50, Joseph is speaking to them again, his brothers, And in verse 20 of Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What Paul is saying, he's he's sort of riffing, if you will, off of what took place with Joseph. Perhaps, All that's taken place, Philemon, Onesimus running away from you, though that harmed you, though that was wrong of him to do, because he was meant and called to be a servant underneath him, underneath you, though it seems that he wronged you in some way, took something from you, whatever, all that took place, Philemon, seems to be, perhaps, this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Because how else would Onesimus have met Paul had he not run away? How else would he have been not have been with someone who would have shared the Lord with him? And these are things that we can only write, read backwards and say, well, that seems to be. And that's what Paul is saying. God is at work in this. He was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. In verse 16, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, we already know what Paul thinks about Onesimus, how much he cares for him, how dear he is to him. He calls him his very heart, his child. But how much more, he says, to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, both in the flesh and in the Lord. That is not saying that um, uh, Onesimus and Philemon were actually flesh brothers. What it's saying is that Onesimus might be back with you in the flesh, He's back with you. He's back there. And it's also owning to the fact that there is a sense of closeness now to the degree of flesh brothers, of blood brothers, but even more so, and in the Lord. And so this, only God can do something like that. Only God can take someone who was once a slave to Philemon and allow him to go on this long path, running away. Onesimus thinks perhaps at that time he's finding freedom. He's getting out underneath all of that. He's on this long journey. He winds up in Rome, meets Paul, and everything changes. And it's almost like Onesimus thinks, well, I, everything that I was heading to try to do is all different now because I've met, I've met a way better master and I'm, I'm, I'm a bondservant of a way better master now. And because I am the bondservant of this better master, Jesus Christ, I can go back and be... I can, I can do whatever. I'm free. Even if I am still a slave of Philemon. Even if I am still a runaway slave. Even if I do have this past. Even if I have done all these things. I can be free from all of that. Because my, mass, my new master, he's so much better than anything that I've ever known, than anyone that I've ever known. I'm free now. It doesn't matter what I am, or what anyone else labels me as, or whatever my past is. I have a new master. And so, this is, this is a wonderful, beautiful transformation that only God could conjure up. Sp- uh, Spurgeon says about this little thing here as as Paul is appealing to Philemon nature is selfish but grace is loving people who boast that they care for nobody and nobody cares for them are the reverse of a Christian for Jesus Christ enlarges the heart when he cleanses it some of us would say I don't really like people very much (laughs) That, that, that can't exist as a statement that comes out of the mouth of someone who knows Jesus Christ. You might say you just prefer to be by yourself. That's okay. You get recharged by just spending some alone time. But there's not a category for a Christian who doesn't like people. And even more so, a Christian that doesn't have the capacity, wrought by the Holy Spirit, informed by the word of God, a Christian who doesn't have the capacity to do this kind of forgiveness, to do this kind of reconciliation. Yeah, it's impossible with men, but what have we heard many times over? Nothing's impossible with God. Preaching in the fourth century, John Chrysostom said this, The master of Paul is not ashamed to call our servants his own brethren. The master of Paul, Jesus, is not ashamed to call our servants. Now, he's speaking at a time when people still had servants, when people still had slaves. He's preaching to a congregation in the 4th century, many of whom had slaves, many of whom had servants in their house. And this is what he says. This is what's so revolutionary about it. The master of Paul, Jesus, is not ashamed to call our servants his own brethren. So as John Chrysostom is preaching to his congregation, he's saying... He's in a context where everybody has servants, everybody has that. And he's saying, Jesus is not ashamed to call our servants his own brethren. And he says, and yet we are ashamed? He says, hear this and shudder. Luke 17, verse 10. Jesus says, so you also... When you have done all that you were commanded, say, "We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty." That idea there is inherent in what Paul is saying. He begins the letter as a prisoner for Christ Jesus, not as an apostle. He is trying to model a path pastorally for Philemon to love, to, he's, he's painting him a picture of humility. he's painting him a picture of "You need to go love Philemon. Don't get caught up in being this whoever you think you are according to societal definitions and categories. You need to go low, Philemon, because your Lord went low. And he reached down out of the dirt and picked you up out of there and he called you his own brother. And so if you're not willing to do that, Philemon, then you haven't understood anything. We are unworthy servants, Jesus says. When you've done all that you were commanded, we are unworthy servants. We've only done that what was our duty there's a sense of humility here that needs to come through if you turn over to the next book back and we're in philemon the next book the book of hebrews in chapter 2 you see because paul is not is not just appealing based on what he himself has experienced or what he himself could do or has the ability to do Paul is actually, there's far more powerful argument here that Paul is making. It's rooted actually in what Jesus Christ has done. See, we we have good godly examples of people in our lives, and we can learn from other Christian brothers and sisters about the ways in which they live their lives and follow the Lord. That's good. But all of that pales in comparison to modeling ourselves after Christ himself. And that's what Paul is appealing to the author to the Hebrews, chapter 2, says this, in verse starting in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, that is Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why, read this, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's not ashamed. You know that, folks, God is not, Jesus Christ is not ashamed of you. Do you hear that? He's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you brothers. (laughs) Do you you need some coffee or something to respond to that? Saying verse 12 I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise and again I will put my trust in him and again I love this behold I and the children God has given me I've always had this picture in my mind of this verse and the context here is what is the author of Hebrews is saying this about what the Lord has done for you and I who are lowly who are not worthy I always picture this, behold, I and the children God has given me. I always have this image in my mind of Jesus, kind of with his arms up around us. Behold, I and the children God has given me. And he's got, he's got us in here. And there's that sense of, these are, these are mine. And we graciously get to be the ones there with his arm around our shoulder. to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Paul's saying to Philemon, Philemon, remember, remember what Christ has done for you. Remember who you were. You have no ability, there's no capacity for you, Philemon, to not get this and to not be able to accept Onesimus back as a beloved brother. Not begrudgingly. Well, I guess you're a Christian now, so I guess i got to be nice to you. But I'm going to talk about you as soon as you walk away. I'm going to post on Facebook about you. Nope. None of that's there. As a beloved brother. Because... Christ has done the same thing to both of us, brother. That's what Philemon should be saying as he sees Onesimus. Brother, what he has done to you, he's done to me. And I didn't deserve it any more than you don't deserve it. So, verse 17. This is where Paul's getting to. Okay, Paul, what are you saying? What are you asking for? So, If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Remember I talked about back in uh, uh, verse 6, the sharing of your faith or the communication of your faith. That word there is the Greek word koinonia, fellowship, communion. Partner, the word partner, there in verse 17 is your koinonos. Same root, sounds the same, right? You can forget about all this when you leave. Doesn't matter. But what does matter is that it's saying if I'm your partner if we have fellowship in Christ if we commune together with Christ if we are together in Christ not partner like you know Paul and Philemon attorneys at law but partner are we together in Christ if you consider me your partner which of course he does receive him as you would receive me. Now just think about that for a minute. How would Philemon receive Paul? Hey The Apostle Paul is coming to the Colossian church tonight or for the month. How are you going to do it? I'm like, hey, Paul, you know, anyways, uh, let me preach. No, you got the Apostle Paul there. The Apostle Paul is here. Bring him down, you know, get him some food, invite him over for dinner. It's like the, the, the prodigal son when he returns, Right? Let's have a feast. Let's have a party. Get him all dressed up. Get him cleaned up. Paul's here. Receive him as you would receive me. And that's, that's the powerful thing. This is what the Lord has done to us. This is the powerful, powerful thing about grace. Imagine what Onesimus would feel as he walked into Philemon's household. And there's Philemon, tears in his eyes. Gives him a hug. They embrace whatever they did in that cultural setting, and Onesimus is able to sit down, perhaps, at Philemon's table, not as a servant, but as a beloved brother, and eat with him and break bread with him. And imagine what Onesimus would feel. Oh man, I don't, I don't deserve this. This isn't what I normally get. And <laughs> isn't that exactly what God has done for what you and I? He's, we, he's come in and he's embraced us. And and all the while, are you feeling, I don't deserve deserve your embrace. I don't deserve your very gaze. I don't even deserve to stand in your presence. And yet, you embrace me, and you bring me in, and you you want a relationship with me, and you want to speak with me, and you invite me to your table, and you promise that when you're coming back, you're coming back for me. And that's what Paul is rooting all of this in. (laughs) That's why he's saying... He's praying. He's praying, verse 6. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. This is every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. This kind of reconciliation, this kind of forgiveness, this kind of, oh, this is what I receive. This is what I'm going to give back to you. Verse 18. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now, Paul is not an independently wealthy fellow. So who knows what Onesimus owed Philemon, what he stole, what he ruined, what he, whatever. But Paul is sticking his neck out, and he takes over the pen, in verse 19, takes over the pen, I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. It's Paul's signature of the IOU. I'll take care of it. Well, you know, you might think, well, wait a minute, Paul, I don't. I don't that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of radical. You don't know what he owes. Maybe Onesimus didn't tell him everything. So when Philemon says it, well, let me get the bill out. Send it to Paul. This is what he owes me. And Paul, Paul is saying, whatever, whatever, charge it to my account. This is, this is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is it not? Goes and sees him, brings him, heals his wounds, takes him to the inn. I'll pay for it. Whatever's left over, I'll pay for the rest. It's almost like Paul's heard that before. But look at the end of verse 19. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. (laughs) Okay, Paul. Is he laying it on here kind of thick? No. He's reminding Philemon, look, I'll pay it. But remember, brother. You owe me your very own self. Remember who you are in Christ. God was pleased to work through me, through my ministry. You owe me your own self. And we don't know. We can assume that it's conversion. It could be so much more than that. We don't know what that owing was. But Paul's careful to remind him of that. Verse 20, he goes on Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Now, here's the interesting thing that word benefit in Greek sounds exactly like Onesimus. I want some benefit from you in the Lord. What's he been saying? Right? I want your goodness to not be of out of compulsion but of your own accord, really saying send Onesimus back? Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord sounds just like Onesimus. Refresh my heart in Christ. Ah. Remember back in verse 7? He said, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. He's saying, refresh mine. Paul is not being manipulative in the way in which he speaks here. Paul is building things up at the beginning because it's a letter. It's as if Paul is standing, having a conversation with Philemon and speaking to him. That's how we need to view the word of God not as some document that we study and think about, and isn't that interesting, but as though God were speaking to you because he is. And that's exactly what Paul thinks this letter is. When it unroll it, however, and it's read to Philemon, it's like Paul standing there speaking to him. Refresh my heart in Christ. Verse 21, see there what it says, confident of your obedience I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul is confident that Philemon will do the right thing that he will obey, but he says even more than I say well what did Paul say let's review that quickly verse sixteen he wants to have onesimus back he wants Philemon to receive Onesimus back as a brother and not a slave verse sixteen verse seventeen he wants Philemon to receive Onesimus as he would receive Paul verse eighteen he wants Any wrong done by Onesimus to Philemon to be charged to Paul's account. Verse 20. He wants some benefit to be given to Paul and all that that could mean. Those are the things that Paul said. But he says, I'm confident that you will do even more than I say. And the whole debate that rages about this letter is is Paul asking Philemon to free Onesimus as a slave. Because only Philemon can do that. It would cost money. Is that what he's that's the whole question behind this letter? But there's something we need to think about. In that society, if Philemon were to free Onesimus, he would become what's called a freed man. <laughs> Sorry. It just <laughs> sounds like it's gonna be profound, but it's not, right? Slave is at the bottom of that society. He becomes a freed man. But he's not a citizen. He can't own land. He can't own a house. He can't have many of the benefits that a normal citizen like Paul would have, or like Philemon. And so how good would it be in that culture, in that context, for Philemon to free Onesimus? Because he would simply be saying, you're freed, but you're not a citizen, so you can't have a lot of the benefits that I have. And so how equal are they, and how just is that? Doing even more than I say means that everything that's going to take place now uh, between you, you, Philemon, and Onesimus, yes, you might retain or stay as master-slave, or you might simply just allow Onesimus to come back to me, and you just do nothing with the whole slave-master thing. But everything that you're about to do is going to change things from the inside out. Maybe you don't free him, because how loving would that be? But it's about doing something different. Nobody else is doing this. Nobody else is doing this with their servants, with their slaves. One uh, commentator on this says this, what the letter to Philemon does is to bring the institution of slavery into an atmosphere where it could only wilt and die. You see, Philemon and Paul can't go and change all of the co- contexts and societal things in Rome. They can't walk up to Caesar and say, hey, Jesus says slavery is bad, so you need to get rid of it. Oh, okay. That's not going to happen. Right? But what can happen is for one man, Philemon, who's in Christ, to take one other man, Onesimus, who's now in Christ, and begin to do everything differently and to view things in an entirely different way. And really, it's no longer about master and slave. Maybe on paper, according to the Roman government or whatever, that's the context of the relationship, but at home and the day-to-day and as they speak to one another, that's not how it goes anymore. Because Paul says, remember, Galatians 3, there's no longer slave or free in Christ. Everything's different. And what Paul is saying is he's kind of parachuting into a context, into a society, into a culture. Yes, slavery is demeaning and wrong. It devalues people. It is a corrupt, evil, uh, whole institution. But Paul's, and this is what, isn't what this what the Lord does with everything? Into a fallen, corrupt world. He comes as a little child in Bethlehem, lives a humble, quiet life, an obedient life, dies on a cross, that is how God turns everything upside down, subversively, as we wait for the kingdom. It's going to be very clear one day exactly how the king comes. But this is how Paul is saying, this is how everything's turned upside down, brought inside out. As you deal with one another completely differently than you did before, and as all your other buddies who have their servants and slaves, you're going to do it differently. They're going to talk about, did you see Philemon had Onesimus eating at his table? And like, I I needed some more to drink and Onesimus didn't get up. What's that about? He calls him brother. I saw them embrace. They were praying together at church. Everything's different. Verse 22, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Most of the letter has been written directly to Philemon. Here in both of these uh, mentions of your and you is plural. He's talking now to the whole household, to the whole church. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. This is the only command Paul gives in the whole letter. Everything else is an appeal, is an ask, is a request. This is the only command he gives. Prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. It says something about what Paul thinks about his imprisonment. It says that he expects God to release him from this at some point through some scenario. And that he will be, through your prayers, graciously given back to them that he might come. And it's kind of Paul's subtle way of also asserting his authority. In other words, I'll be there soon. Then he closes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. Epaphras is talked about in uh, the book of Colossians. Most likely, Epaphras is the one who began the church in Colossae. He evangelized the Colossians. You can read in the beginning there of the the letter to the Colossians in chapter 1. He is uh, also mentioned in chapter 4, verse 12 of Colossians as one of you. In other words, one of the Colossians, so he is of them. And here he refers to him as a fellow prisoner in Christ. Now, it's not; no one's really sure was he a prisoner at that same time with Paul or had he been a prisoner before because he's not mentioned as a prisoner in Colossians. Nevertheless, he's very important to the Colossian church. He began the Colossian church. Many of them have the kind of relationship that Philemon does with Paul, with Epaphras. He's the one who shared Christ with them the first time. He's the one who evangelized them. He sends greetings. And so do this list of other fellow workers. Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. Mark, wonderful story of John Mark. We don't have the time to go through it. He's a cousin of Barnabas. He's a partner with Barnabas and Paul. Pretty soon there's a falling out over Mark because he leaves and kind of withholds a bit, and there's this long span of time that they seem to be drifted apart, but wonderfully there in Second Timothy, Paul says, he's useful to me in the ministry. And there's, we can assume, a redemption that takes place with his relationship with Mark. That falling away, uh, it would seem perhaps hasn't happened yet, or maybe they've begun to uh, re- repair, rather, by this point. Aristarchus is mentioned there in Colossians And in Acts a couple times, he's a fellow prisoner, as he's mentioned in Colossians. Demas, you probably remember Demas because it's not good. In Colossians chapter 4, he's mentioned as well. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Demas has left me. He's in love with the present world. So that hasn't taken place yet. But soon Demas would leave. Soon Demas would depart. And then Luke. We've talked a lot about Luke. We're talking about him on Wednesday night. Luke, there is with him as well. They're all fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. We talked about, remember back in verse three, grace to you and peace, and the importance of those words. And what Jesus or what Paul is saying here is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, this is just your spirit. Every person has a soul and a spirit, biblically, and so this is your spirit. And I was thinking about this yesterday. How much, how much can we have a uh, a, a frustrated, selfish spirit, a divisive spirit, an angry spirit, a grumbling spirit, right? How often can our spirit, right, inside of us be twisted and turned by whatever's going on? And how much more do we need grace being with our spirit? I need, I don't know about you, but I need the Lord's grace in my spirit because I can be a real pain in the neck, to others around me, but also to my own self. And I wonder, why, why, am, why have I been like this? And this is why, even as, even as Philemon is receiving this letter, and all the others are receiving this letter, Paul is praying that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with their spirit, that they would receive it in the right spirit, that they would receive it in a humble spirit, in a, in a spirit that acknowledges the Lordship of Christ. All right, to summarize a few things, and we'll land the plane. God seems to be in the business of freeing, redeeming, and using, and making slaves his people. We talked about Joseph, right? Joseph is a great example of this. He's brought low. God does not exalt the proud, does he? Exalts the humble. Think about the entire nation of Israel in the Exodus. It's a whole nation of slaves, freed, redeemed, pulled out of that, made his special people. Of course, that was based on a promise already made. But for 400 years, he's, they're all in slavery. God pulls them out miraculously. The passage that Pastor read in Romans 6, I was going to go to as well, the very essence of salvation is that you and I were slaves to sin. Sin was our master. Sin was our Lord. We could only but obey it. And we have a new master if you are in Christ. You have a new Lord. You have a new King. Sin isn't any of those things to you anymore. You're freed from sin, you're not enslaved to sin anymore if you're in Christ. So God is in the business of freeing, redeeming, using, and making slaves his people. And this is another example, Philemon is another example of that taking place. There's another thing I talked about when I mentioned earlier about going back to Genesis, just the very essence of dignity, worth, and value for people. And this is something that Pastor David and I and um, others that are in uh, the Next Gen ministry in the school, we're going to be talking about with the kids, is just... Where does all this sense of identity and value and worth come from? Because the culture around us, right, society is so confused about who has value and how do you determine whether you have value. And we could talk about self-esteem, but all those words are cheap when when we don't think about it biblically. But what are we told back in Genesis 1? I won't have you turn there. You probably know this. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, that every person that Adam and Eve, yes, were, but every person after that is made in the image of God. And that very essence of that you and I are made in the image of God and so is the worst possible person you can think of and the person that you don't agree with and the person that you don't really like and the person that you're completely different with, they're all made in the image of God. And so we at least, this is not even getting to Christ yet, we at least there have a sense of every person has value, worth, and dignity. And we're called to respect that, to honor that, because if we don't, we're actually saying that we don't respect or value the image of God, or God himself. And so this is is what's behind much of what's going on here, but we, of course, know the fall took place, right? Genesis 3 took place. And when that took place... It marred the image of God. We still are made in the image of God, but that image is marred through sin. But the the New Testament tells us several places, Romans 8, 29, that all believers in Christ are being conformed to the the image of Christ. Uh, Colossians 3, verse 10 The new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So things are being repaired. God is in the business right now as he sanctifies believers of making us back into the image of himself, which we were made in. And so that brings about a whole other need for love, that let alone we're all made in the image of God, and that means that we need to treat one another with respect, worth, value, and dignity. But now that we're in Christ, there's a whole other level. Everything's been ratcheted up to a few more notches such that I'm in Christ with you. I've been redeemed just like you are. I don't deserve it, neither do you. But now we have equal standing before the Lord. The Lord of the universe thinks that we are valuable and worthy and of dignity. (laughs) How can we not then value and worth, uh, deem one another worth of dignity, love, and respect? As I mentioned a couple of texts last week about being one in Christ, Galatians 3, Ephesians 2. Um, I, I don't have time to go to the other ones I was going to go to. I'll just go to one. 2 Corinthians, if you turn back with me to Second Corinthians. This whole nature of being one in Christ and the power of that. There's some sense in which all of this right, has a lot of ways that I could, that you and I can apply this to our lives. I said last week, nobody here has a slave, nobody here has servants, nobody here is a slave. You, as much as you might feel that way about your job, nobody here is a slave or a, a, a servant in that way. So it becomes hard for us to, well, how do I, Nick, how do I connect all this? Well, you do have a lot of people with whom you have differences. You do have a lot of people with whom you are not the same. And if you are in Christ together, the God himself says that there is no reason for that to separate you, that there's no room in the body of Christ for little pockets and factions and divisions that society tries to impose on us because for eternity, in glory, before the Lord of the universe, none of that will matter. Nobody will care in eternity what Philemon was, only that he was in Christ. Just the same as nobody will care in eternity what Onesimus was, just that he was in Christ. And so this oneness in Christ that we have is not just this nice theological truth that we can all go, well, that's great. But it actually has feet to it. It acts, it does something, it means something. And 2 Corinthians 5 brings this out for us. Let me jump in at verse 16. From now on, therefore... That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. There are two categories of reconciliation in in this. The most important one is our reconciliation with God himself. Because without Christ, you are not at peace with God right now. If you are not a believer in Christ, you are not at peace with God right now. But God is calling you to have peace with him through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life for you, who died a horrible, horrendous death for you, who rose again victoriously three days later for you so that you might be reconciled to God. And God calls you to faith in Him so that you might be reconciled. And anybody that has believed in Jesus Christ, all who have called upon His name, are reconciled to God. But there's another aspect of this reconciliation, such that how can the body of Christ not be reconciled to one another. That's an oxymoron. A body that fights against itself doesn't make any sense. And so there's no room for the lack of reconciliation to happen amongst us. It has to start here, because otherwise we're just like the rest of the world. If we're all just trying to get along, we, there's no power there. But the power comes from we're all reconciled to God through Christ. If that's true, then let's tip it this way and start to look around us. But if we start here, that's what a lot of people do. They want to start here. Well, we need to just get along and be happy with each other. Well, look at the world. Look at history. That doesn't work. But if we're one in Christ, we need to be like Paul and trust the gospel. And it's going to be difficult. It's going to be weird. It's going to be uncomfortable. They don't agree with this. I don't agree with that. They like this. I don't like that. Who cares? You're one in Christ. I said that was going to be the last thing, but I lied to you. I'm sorry. This is really the last thing. This all comes back to love. I talked about this last week. That sounds so cheap in our, in our ears. The world talks about love and they don't understand it. If you come and continue to come and have been coming to first, uh, the first John Focus Hour, first John lays it out wonderfully about what love is. And God gets to define what love is, not us. But John 13.35 says this, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. This is Jesus. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you all disagree about each other and start churches because you're angry at each other. Well, that doesn't say that. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I talked about last week, we, we want God, we pray that God will continue to use us for his name, for his sake, for his glory. I mean us as in us. Alpine Bible Church, and we want to see God continue to grow Uh, us. We want to see more missionaries sent. We want to see more people hearing about the Lord. We want to see more people growing in Christ. We want to see more people loving the word of God. We want to see more people coming together in prayer for each other. But none of that and much more will happen if there is a rotten core of hatred, division, and whatever else in the midst of us. If we do not love one another, brothers and sisters, God will bless and honor nothing that we do. And I, I said that last week, I've said it again, and I'm, don't read into what I'm saying. Simply hear God saying, Love one another. Don't spend your time thinking about, well, is he talking about, I mean, is, is this happened? Oh, but maybe this. Just love one another, right? That's not me, that's the Lord. By this. All people will know that you are my disciples. What a great testimony to everyone around us in our community, in our county, whatever. You know, Alpine Bible Church, they love one another so well. It's so appealing. It's so, it's obviously Christ. Whoever says, verse, 1 John 2, 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Let's talk about hatred for a minute, real quick. Hatred doesn't just mean Like the extreme. Anything less than love is hatred. Either through expression, action, inaction, avoidance, right? How does Jesus how does God love us? But pursuing and serving, right? And so you take those things away, it can't be love. So hatred isn't just some, you know, the the extreme over here. And whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. The pastor said, if there's not a change in your life, both in your life personally, within your spirit, within yourself, but also how you express love, or if you do it all, then you might not be in Christ. Whoever, 1 John two eleven, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You perhaps know this song. They'll know we are Christians by our love. We'll guard each man's dignity and save each man's pride. They'll know we are Christians by our love. Church, may that be true of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's always true. Thank you that it's always good. I pray that your spirit would have its way in each heart here. God, that you would work, change, convict, encourage. I pray that if someone doesn't know you today, that they would understand how far you have gone to reconcile them back to you. May they hear and believe and receive freedom and peace for the first time. They won't find it anywhere else as they'll find it in you, Lord. And Lord, those of us who love you and call on your name, may we grow in grace and in love for one another so that you might be all the more glorified in us, in this place, in our church, in and throughout the world so that, Lord, we might look to you when you return knowing that we have done what we were commanded and eagerly be received into your kingdom. God, we... Lord, I can't wait to see your face. Until then, may we serve you with joy and gladness, trusting you. We love you, Lord, and pray in Christ's name. Amen.